You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And now that heart is beating fast, and that's the rhythm I can dance to. I'm mighty glad I've got a chance to, that one big heart that's beating fast. Tomorrow morning, let it rain. Tomorrow morning, let it pour. Tonight we're in the groove together. Ain't gonna worry about stormy weather. Gonna kick all trouble out the door. Beat out all trouble and drunk. Beat out all trouble and drunk. Beat out all trouble and drum and kick all trouble out the door. Beat me that rhythm on the drum. Beat me that rhythm on the drum. Beat me that rhythm on the drum and kick all trouble out the door. Kick him 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 out the Welcome to Radical Australia and Community Radio 3CR. This program is streaming on 3cr.org.au. My name is Joseph Toscano. I'm hosting today's program. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast the next few days by going to 3cr.org.au. Young Kelly Whitworth, our great producer, has put her hand in the barrel and pulled out Priya Kunjan. Now, I got that wrong, didn't I, Priya? Look, Kunjun is close enough. I, no, I good, good enough. I know how to pronounce it. my own name. Yeah, how, well, how do you pronounce it? No, I mean, I, I, I feel like I butcher it, especially with this accent. <laughs> <laughs> Look, um, I know nothing about the guests. I'm told about 15 minutes before the program because I like to make it a spontaneous interview. But when Kelly mentioned the name Prayer and physically described what you look like. I thought, oh, that's an old friend of mine, but you're not an old friend of mine. You're another Prayer. Well, I mean, I think I must have seen you in the station before. Well, it could have been unfortunate. Yeah, I've been here for 45 years, so you may have stumbled <laughs> across me. <laughs> ah. But, yeah, so what year were you born? Would you like to tell us that or not? Oh, I don't mind. I was born in 1993. 93. You're still in nappies. What's going on? I know. Well, you know, I think uh, as far as my parents are concerned, I'm definitely still a baby. Yeah, yeah, because... Yeah, 93. She's not 19. What's 22 and 7? Is 29. 29, yeah. yeah. 29. Kelly said you were 19, but math's never been her strong point. <laughs> It's okay. I uh, I only know around about when it's my birthday, how old I am. That's the only time I do the math. Also, I, also, I should say my pronouns are they and them. Right. I got that. Yeah. I'm sorry about that, Priya. <laughs> no, all good. So, where were you born with that accent? Um, can you not tell that I was born in Perth? No. <laughs> <laughs> You were born in Perth and you talk like you do, Priya. What happened? Well, I moved around a lot as a kid because yeah. um, of Dad's work. And so I um, yeah, I went to American schools 
in India and in Malaysia before coming back here. So I had the chance to be taught by teachers from a lot of different backgrounds, but a lot of Americans. Mm, that's interesting. Mm. So are your parents still alive? Yes. Now, you can only say good things about your parents on this show. So, <laughs> got any... Well, but that, that depends on whether they, they're tuning in. Well, but it's going to be podcasts. They may tune in. You know what parents are like. I'm a parent and a grandparent, you know, and occasionally you want to find out what the kids have been doing with themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, brothers and sisters? I have one little sister. One little sister, right. Yes. And are your parents still working? Uh, my dad just retired, and my mum has, uh, well, she does a lot of volunteering, but she hasn't been in paid work for a while. Right, right. Yeah. And, uh, what type of work was your dad in? Don't tell me he was part of ASIO. No, but it is equally kind of uh, icky. Oh, right. Well, um, we won't mention it. We won't mention no, it. No, no, I'll give you I'll give you <laughs> some of the backstory as well, because I feel like this might be interesting. Um, he's in um, he's a geophysicist, and so mm-hmm. he was in oil and gas, um, which is you know yep. not something that I'm too pleased about as an adult. But well, it um, paid for education. It did, and it is uh, it is something that I think he was pushed into out of the ambitions that he did have for himself, just because of the circumstances he grew up in. Mm. Mm. So, what, what were his circumstances? Um, so both my parents are South Indian. My dad's from Kerala. My mom is from Tamil Nadu, but both via Malaysia. Mm-hmm. And they grew up in large families with very little money. And so when my dad did make it to university, he had these grand plans of being a town planner, and he was so excited to, you know, get into things like architecture. Um, but unfortunately, there was very little interest in and, and courses running for those kinds of things. And there were guaranteed jobs and scholarships attached to, uh, you know, going into the geosciences. And so it ended up being a practical choice about, you know, where am I able to go to to support family um, rather than, you know, following his heart. But I'm sure now that he's retired, he'll be back to all those grand plans. Yeah, look, I feel for your dad. I I was in a similar position coming from a migrant background. I was pushed into medicine and I continued as a doctor for almost 46 years. But my heart was in archaeology, but I I was drummed into me. There's no money in archaeology. That's the way it is. So we're basically human sacrifices for people like you, your dad and me. eh? I know. Now I can continue to uh, accumulate degrees with gay abandon. Yeah, yeah, that's right, exactly. We put you on the right path, as they say. So tell us about, so did the, was, was the family kind of in Malaysia for generations or? Well, that's, uh, that's something that I'm still kind of figuring out. I mean, like, I know how many generations, but this is something that I'm really keen to learn about more now that my dad's retired and he's got time to start going through his documents. Um, because my grandfather, my paternal grandfather, um, moved from Kerala um, to Malaysia. And so that was the sort of first generation on that side. And then his, my dad's 
um, grandfather, so his mother's father um, was the one that had moved over to Malaysia. And then on my mum's side, I'm not quite sure um, how long ago people moved over. And there's, yeah, a lot of stuff I'm still trying to unpack about, you know, how how they ended up getting there, um, whether things like, you know, indentured labor were involved in them being brought over to Malaysia. So, yeah, this is something I'm really interested to find out myself. Oh, I think you will find they'll be indentured laborers. It mm-hmm. is the, the British Empire's way of ensuring that uh, the work was done. It's that simple. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure that's the background, especially, as you said, your father came from a poor family and your mother came mm-hmm. from a poor family. And, uh, yeah, it's interesting uh, background. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. So have you spent much time in Malaysia? Yeah, so I, um, when I was, oh, gosh, I can't, you know, I remember uh, the year that I was born, and I know what year it is now, but I can't remember uh, exactly how old I was when I lived there. But we had visited a lot across my childhood, and we lived in Kale for a couple of years as well. Um, And uh, I guess it's kind of like the hub of each family are still based there, even though people have have moved all over the place as well. Mm. So it's talking about school, that you moved Mm -hmm. a lot and you acquired this American accent, although you were born in Perth. You realise it's a curse. You, You know that in Australia it's a curse to have an American accent? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I've definitely been made fun of and told that I watch too much TV. <laughs> <laughs> it's the cross to bear, you know. It's your... Mm-hmm. Yes. So, what was school like? I assume it was all... You were taught in English everywhere you went? Yeah. Um, so, I... I mean, I guess... I did, like, kindy in, in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, and then... We moved to Scotland for a little bit, and so uh, I think I did maybe 18 months of school there, and then I was in the American school system for the next couple of years. Right. Um, yeah. So moving around a lot, obviously, um, there was a lot of upheaval, I think, in terms of making friends and keeping friends, because this was, this was, you know, before Facebook was a thing and young people used social media, so... It was like reinventing myself every time I moved. It, it does have it does have a profound impact on your character. You're quite right. A profound impact. The fact that you can't form lasting friendships. Like you wouldn't have any friendships from your school days, still, would you? I mean, I have um, because we moved back here and sort of settled back down in 2006. I want to say, like, I have friends from then and I also have friends from when I was very young that my parents knew in Australia before they had me and then um, so these are people that we've kept in touch with across my life but yeah I couldn't really I don't think I could count on even one finger how many people I've kept in touch with across the other um, countries that we've moved to from school. Yeah it's very difficult childhood not having that you know, that foundation. Now, going back, did you speak English at home or did you speak another language? Uh, this is a point, uh, this is a sore spot for me that I want to talk about, not not, not something that I want to um, shirk away from. But I, I'm mainly mad at myself for not investing in learning uh, Tamil and Malayalam um, because my parents 
did speak Tamil at home uh, a bit. It was usually, you know, um, this is a very classic ethnic experience where your, your parents are mad at you and so they speak in their, in their language. Um, but we did have uh, Tamil lessons for a little bit as well so that I could speak to my grandmother. Um, but then after she passed away when I was quite young, I sort of dropped off. So I've never been able to speak any other language as well, even though lots of members of my family do. Yes, look, it's, it's, it's a common issue. Like, um, yeah, my parents spoke Italian. I still speak it, but my children don't speak a word of it. It's just part mm. of the assimilation process, unfortunately. Mm. But you've got the time now to go back um, in terms of uh, exploring your roots, which is great if your father's uh, in a position to do so. Because it does make a difference yeah. knowing where you come from. So high school or okay. secondary college, I should say, where, where did that happen? That was in Sydney. In Sydney. So, oh, Sydney yeah. City. Oh, private school, I assume. No. No? Uh, well, what's going on here? It was a, it was a public it was a public school that um, really wanted to be a selective school. Mm-hmm. And, um, and there were a lot of people... Um, I mean, it was in a sort of fairly well-off area, so there were a lot of people in the catchment area who were doing quite well for themselves. So there was a lot of grandiose aspirations, uh, even though it was a public school. Mm. So did your parents kind of select that catchment area so you could go to a good public school? Yeah, I think because, um, you know, because they we made the decision, I guess, as a, as a whole family that um, we were going to move back and sort of settle down for my sister and I to go into high school and do old high school in one place. Um, there was a bit of deliberation about where to move and so they did kind of do a bit of thinking about where would be a place that my dad could get work and that we could, um, yeah, spend at least five or six years. So what, they'd acquired Australian citizenship by then, had they? Yeah, so they'd, um, I believe they got their citizenship in the 80s. So my dad um, had, moved, like my parents moved here, um, yeah, in, in the 80s, um, you know, after my dad had been working for a little bit and just after they got married. And so they um, they were living here as a married couple in, in Sydney and then in Perth as well. Um, and they'd gotten citizenship then before they, before they had me. So what was was he what, was he a Colombo Plain student? You know that's a good question. I have thought about that before, and he's talked about it before, but I can't remember if the answer to that is yes or no. Right, because it, it was an interesting period. Because that's you know when I went to university in the early seventies, and we had a lot of Colombo Plain students, and it was basically mm. bring across bright people from emerging new nation states to influence them because we mm-hmm. and the government here expected they would assume leadership roles in their own country at a later date and it was a way of you know uh, having good relationships with these new emerging states you know like malaya and then malaysia and indonesia and yeah it was a very evil little plan but it, it worked yeah. very well <laughs> building up the building up the comprador class yeah, to, uh, yeah, to yeah. come back home yeah, look, I'm, I'm going to big note myself. In 1967, I was, uh, what was I, about 15, 16? At that stage, they had a, the United States had a program where they used to uh, invite 
bright public students to the embassy have little chats. It's quite interesting, isn't it, the way they pick and choose people who they think are going to get on in life and uh, inculcate them with those ideas. It's a little bit like... i tell you what I really hate. I shouldn't say it's your interview, Priya, but I hate these scholarships that private schools have where they poach the best and the bright public school students and offer them a... Mm -hmm. You know, a private education inculcate them of all that crap. You know, it really annoys me. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, it does seem to... There's this constant aggressive attempt to do, you know, quote-unquote brain drain as if uh, people who are smart can't thrive in a public school. And the only reason that people across the board might not be thriving in public schools is because there's no investment in public schools. Exactly, exactly. Now, getting back to your high school, did you think... Did you excel at anything? Um, also a good question. I feel like I was good at some things, but I needed a lot of help focusing. Um, so there were things that I liked and things that I was good at, and those didn't always overlap. So I really, really enjoyed science, um, but I had to... I had to put in a lot of work and I had tutoring support to try and wrap my head around, you know, things like physics, which I ended up dropping. Um, I really loved math, but I also really enjoyed English. And looking back on the creative writing that I used to do in high school, I can't, can't imagine doing that now, but it was something that I was pretty invested in. You haven't got some diaries hidden away from that period, have you? Uh, I think I have, uh, I have unfortunately made my parents hang on to a lot of my school stuff, um, but with the proviso that they are not allowed to read any of it, um, because it's embarrassing. Um, <laughs> so I think one day I'm going to have to, uh, confront that, but definitely not today. Yeah, look, wait till you're 50 and then you realise what a little prat you were when you were 15. That's my experience. <laughs> oh, I mean, I think I'm already there, uh, looking back at myself and yes right so what was the interaction as, as the hormones started flowing between you and uh, your parents and wider society oh so much fighting um but i think it was also i think it was an interesting time because you know i i had some difficult experiences that i won't go into right. but um but that had kind of influenced the way that I experienced sort of puberty and finding my own way in the world. And so I did struggle a lot with mental illness, and that also kind of made it, I don't know, it was, it was interesting because it was kind of difficult to sort of figure out what my own identity was outside of being, you know, a student or a kid of someone. Um, and so I did a lot of thinking and exploring and very embarrassing, uh, you know, tastes in music and that sort of thing. Uh, and I really think that I'm only sort of finding my way as to, like, who I am as an adult in my late 20s. Yeah, look, it's very, very difficult, especially from your uh, different country, different culture, it's, hmm. uh, to actually somehow assimilate or survive it's it's the migrant experience it's uh, it's very common so yeah. you finished high school yes 
Yes, I did. Um, and my, I had very sort of, well, I had quite different dreams than, than I do now. Um, but I was very interested in going into the biomedical sciences. And so that's, that's where I went straight out of high school. So there was a lot of, I guess, concerted effort to um, get a good score so that I could, you know, get into a program that would potentially put me on the track to medicine. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, you made the right choice not entering medicine. Look at me. <laughs> well, unfortunately, I'm, unroll- I'm enrolled in a doctoral degree of another kind, so I don't nice. know. It feels like I, I dodged the bullet only to get hit by another bullet. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> I tell you what, I've got a doctorate of medicine, just big noting myself, and I'm afraid you'll always be behind me in the academic procession at the university. That's the way it goes. So you can relax. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think, you know, that was also, when you mentioned the migrant experience as well, I think there was also, I was very fortunate to have parents that were not, you know, they didn't put a lot of, pressure on me. They encouraged me a lot and were very proud of my achievements, but they didn't sort of push me to go one way or another. That was kind of an internal thing that I wanted to go into medicine. Um, But then part of that, I think, was also kind of, and this is a process I'm still going through, realizing what I wanted my own identity and, you know, life trajectory to be as a migrant and whether I wanted to really fit into this model minority category um, or do something that felt right for me. Mm, that's right. It's, it's very, very easy to be pigeonholed and feel comfortable in a small pool. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I look at a lot, a lot of my contemporaries and what happened to them, and they kind of slotted into that migrant, you know, first-generation type of experience, fast cars, trade school, mm. that type of thing. Yeah. So... Once you graduated, what were your, what were your aspirations and were you able to uh, begin that journey? Well, it was, it was interesting because as I moved towards the end of my, um, of my degree in, it was uh, anatomy and, and neuroscience, um, and I wanted, to do, I wanted to go into pain research and um, nerve injury research. And so then I decided that I, if I was going to do honours, I would do it um, at a pain lab that was focused on things that I cared about. And at the time, it was looking into endometriosis. And so I decided to come to Melbourne. And then I realised that maybe that's not what I wanted to do after all. So I'd moved to Melbourne and I ended up, you know, having a difficult time, dropping out of my degree. And then, um, you know, after spending some time with my partner, realising that out of spite, I wanted to get into into anthropology. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I said, you know, the last thing we need is another uh, white man with an anthropology degree, so maybe I'll have a crack at this. And that sort of set me broadly down the path that I'm on now. Anthropology? Well, I'm not not in anthropology, and now I'm in political science, but I... That's that's a step down, isn't it? Well... (laughs) I don't know. I feel like anthropology was a was a bit of a weird one um, going in because I had no experience in the social sciences. And then going into anthropology classes, there were some things where, you know, it was like somebody had traveled to, to South India and had 
done writing about stuff, and I was like, this feels very alienating, reading this kind of work. Right. Yeah. So, so what, what university were you tied to in, in Melbourne? Um, I'm at Melbourne Uni, so... So you, yeah. did, you, did, you did, what, biosciences at Melbourne Uni? No, so that was, so that was at Sydney Uni. Right, um, right. You know, so I, I haven't, I haven't um, strayed too far away from the model minority thing, going right. to the Sandstone University... Yes. Um. yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you need to stay on the Sandstone University. You know that there's the top eight. That's that's what's important. You realise that. <laughs> I mean, it's good for your career. Just wait. You write all those papers about political science. I mean, before you know it, you'll be pre-selected for a safe whatever seat somewhere. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, next thing I'll be uh, I'll be doing I'll be doing a fellowship at the Harvard School of whatever. Obviously, no. obviously, yes. <laughs> now, Priya, getting, getting, getting back a step or two, mm-hmm. so your time at Sydney University, was that pleasant, unpleasant? I mean... It was interesting because I really, really, really loved what I ended up doing there when I went into anatomy and neuroscience. Um, I think at that time... I really did genuinely feel like I can do this for the rest of my life. Um, I can do this kind of thinking, and it was it was something that really worked for me in terms of, you know, and this was, um, you know, I'll spare you the gory details, but some of this was about um, preparing, you know, teaching specimens. Yeah, um, look, and, look and you can talk to me about the gory details. <laughs> In 1972, six of us were allocated the desiccated body of an elderly woman and over the next 12 months we dissected every little bit of her. So so things haven't changed between 72 and whenever you did anatomy, have they? No, no. And, I mean, you know, not sparing you, but maybe the listeners are very oh, Don't worry about the listeners. There aren't, there aren't any <laughs> listeners. It's just you, me, and Kelly. That's the way you do interviews. You don't worry about the listeners. That's their problem. That is They true. can always, they can switch off. You know that. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, you had the old desiccated body, did you? We did. Um, well, because what I was, this was for a, a cranial and cervical anatomy um, mm-hmm. course. We got, uh, a group of us got, um, I guess, the bust of a person. Mm-hmm. And so then we, you know, went through, um, you know, exposing different musculature and um, the lymphatic system. And then um, I guess then at some point in the semester, the brain was removed and then we looked at the nerves and the skull and all that kind of thing. So it mm-hmm. was, um, yeah, I, it was something that I really, really enjoyed and I really liked being able to sort of, use my hands, but also have to think and be precise. And um, that was something that I got a lot out of. Did you, were you able to get rid of that smell? Because there's a distinct smell where you're an anatomy student. I did anatomy 50 years ago and I can still, talking to you, it's all coming back, you know? Yeah, the formalin. Yes. It, It never goes away. No. Your friends know you're a part of the medical fraternity or biomedical science when you walk into the cafeteria and when there's a group of you at the same table, it just rises. You can tell when people have come out of lab. Yeah, you can. What is that smell? Uh, It's just an overpowering sense to me of mortality. 
it's not, I mean, it's not disgusting. No, no. The smell. It's, and it's, it's, it's uh, I guess, mildly unpleasant, but you, t- if you're in the lab, you tune it out very quickly. Yeah. Look, it's um, a bonding experience. Kind of it. it binds you, you know, bonds you to other people. <laughs> It, no, seriously, I remember three things about anatomy. One, the desiccated elderly woman, two, the smell, and three, the bin we used to put in the parts at the end of the day that we'd finished with. But, you know, as you said, in, we need to learn. I mean, we need to learn, and uh, it makes a difference. So why did you move out of this particular field when you were so interested? Well, I think because I was a bit, I don't know, it, it feels weird to say that I was, squeamish but what I ended up being squeamish about was um, I knew that you know going into research on things and you know I'd done a little bit of you know helping out the lab at Sydney Uni on nerve crush injury stuff but that kind of research um, all being on little animals I think I I don't I don't think I had the stomach to to euthanize anything you know I was I was quite comfortable with the fact that people had donated their their bodies and um you know, had had some say in it. I, I, I think, you know, at least by that point, we got the whole talk through how people uh, would will their body to the university um, or to medical research more broadly. But when it came to the point of actually having to kill a box of eight little mice, I couldn't really do that. So you made an ethical choice? I guess it was an ethical choice. It feels... Yeah, it's, I, I always struggle to talk about this because I don't, I don't feel like I have the right language to talk about it either. I'm like, I feel like this, is this research important? Yes. Am I the person who should be doing it? Well, as we see, I've moved away from it entirely. Yeah, well, you, you made a choice to suit you, an ethical choice based on your, mm-hmm. all the things that you had acquired in your body and your brain during a lifetime and you made that choice and people do that all the time they just hmm. could be a relationship can be a, a job that you've done for 15 years and you just walk away so back to melbourne anthropology we gave that we got rid of that why did you get rid of anthropology uh it was i guess there's a lot of uh there are a lot of contradictions in the discipline and a lot of challenges um, it's something that I learned more about as I went along and, you know, kind of thinking about the political economy of the discipline and the way that there was, you know, there was, I, I can't deny that there, there was genuine interest and affinity from, from anthropologists with people around the world to, you know, to genuinely be involved and care about the lives of the people that they were working with. But I also realized that a lot of a lot of things in the discipline were also predicated on power imbalances that were kind of very difficult to look past. And so I thought, you know, I am really interested in learning about people and about how things work, but in the absence of, I guess, more of a focus on a power analysis and, you know, an analysis of race in particular, um, that was something I would, like, I guess I found difficult to, yeah, to get from Anthro. Yeah, look, like you said, 
anthropology has moved from eugenics to what I describe as cultural imperialism and obviously you made another ethical choice to move and I can't believe this into political science. You put it much more succinctly than me and I think um, it is, you know, I should be ashamed of being political science <laughs> but I think I'm, I'm there... Uh, I'm technically in political science, but I definitely don't identify as a political Technically. Science. What does that yeah. mean? It means that one of my supervisors uh, is in that discipline. Yeah, but what are you doing? Are you doing a master's at the middle or your doctorate? I'm doing a PhD at the moment. Yes. Um, so I am, oh gosh, I'm coming up on my third year review with, uh, with a frighteningly uh, messy array of things to show for it. Mm. So, you know. Uh, wish me luck, but I, my research, um, what I'm looking at is focused on self and media representations of the 26th of January, um, focusing on Indigenous people's assertions of sovereignty, mm-hmm. um, and I guess looking and trying to trouble the way that media, of mainstream media in particular, cultivates a, a sort of common sense investment in the settler state among you know, people that consume mainstream media versus the kinds of political analyses that are being put forward by indigenous activists or just people that are talking about the significance of the date but also the significance of ongoing colonization and the way that's depoliticized as well in, in some of these common sense narratives. Well, I've got some bad news for you. Mm-hmm. It's not going to lead to a good job, you know that. This PhD is not the, the door to uh, economic nirvana. Well, when I, um, when I saw that uh, the government was making a push to, uh, to commercialise research, I was like, the only sales pitch I can provide is burn down the colony, which I don't think is uh, going to sell very well. Well, that's what I'm saying. I mean, this is, this is not good. You, you may have to... Look, just finish the doctorate, please. Just promise me you'll finish it. Oh, definitely. Okay. Uh, some cost. At some cost. Now, obviously, you're more than a you know somebody who's journeying through the academic world. What are your other interests? Well, I've realised recently that my my main other interest right now is radio. So, coming oh, my, to three I mean, VR. Radio. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Radio. You're kidding? Yeah. This is this is yeah. a dead medium. You know that. I know, and yet I <laughs> gravitate towards it. It inexplicably. It's been. It's not. It's not. It's not what I expected. Well, of course, it's not. This is. This is not the ABC or the Three AW. This is community radio. I think it's because I think I really love being a Three CR because I feel like I make a lot of mistakes all the time and nobody's gotten mad at me yet. So. Uh, look, as I told you at the beginning of the program, don't worry about the quality of the sound. It's the quality of the debate and the ideas that matters here at 3CR. True. Yeah. So when did, this, when did this fascination with radio start? Well, it sort of happened spontaneously where I, um, I was interviewing people as part of my thesis up in, uh, in Mianjin, and my friend, um, who was on the Thursday Breakfast program, is, is from there, and she was visiting home, and we met up, and she, she is living down here. Uh, but we just happened to meet while I was up there. And she was like, you know, um, I think somebody is going to be moving on from the Thursday breakfast crew. Would you like to give it a go? 
And I was like, do I have to know anything? And she said, no. Um, and I said, perfect, because I don't know anything. So I will join Thursday Breakfast. And I ended up joining in March of 2020, right before everything hit the fan. Hey, look, that's a very hard gig here at breakfast show. And what time do you get up? Um, my alarm is... I have uh, I have my little signal alarm and my real alarm. So I think it's 5, 5 15. Mm. And what, do you walk but, here? Yeah. Do you walk to the No, I, I ride. You ride. What do you ride? Yeah. I ride a bicycle. Um, <laughs> it is, it is a, uh, Not a Vespa, a bicycle. No, it's a... It's, I think... What is it? I think it's an adventure bike. It's somewhere adventure between a gravel bike. bike and a road bike. So you got gear, you got gears. I have gears. And a padded seat. Uh, it's nowhere near as padded as I wish it was. <laughs> right. And you've got a little container at the back to hold things, I assume? No, I have a... I, I've got these really nifty um, bags that attach to, like, the top tube of mm. the bike, and so yep. it's quite streamlined. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you can't fit too much in them, but yeah. I don't really need to. Yeah, you kind of got a traveller's bike. Mm. Yeah, oh, all right. Why do, you, why do you ride a bicycle around Melbourne? It's not particularly safe, is it? I mean, I really enjoy it. I think it's, it's been something that's been linked as well to... I have, I have a strong aversion to exercise for the sake of exercise. Ah, look, you've, you've, you have found an ally. There is n- I was talking to this, I was talking to we- Kelly while we were having a coffee just before I started the interview about this. I cannot stand people exercising for no reason but to exercise. And you're the same, and, we- and we've got a 30, 40 year difference. Welcome to the club. Well, thank you. It's good to be here. I <laughs> feel like for many years, I was like, well, I get my exercise from walking everywhere. and. Yeah. I'm walking places because I'm trying to get from A to B, and I enjoy that walk, but am I going to go for a walk just to do a big loop? No. Well, I agree. What's the point? I'll say say to Kelly about an hour ago, I said, you know, I see all these young people, you know, these couples jogging, and I say... I say to myself, why don't they just go home and have some sex? That's just, it's productive. I can't believe people do exercise for the sake of exercising. Yeah, I, 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 something, uh, I, I hope that I don't get in trouble with anybody for saying this, but I really, I really can't get my head around the concept of running. <laughs> that's, that's one that really does my head, and I'm like, how do you just run? <laughs> well, you, you close your brain and you run, and then you stuff up your knees when you're older. It's all right. Look, I can only run if I'm being chased. Priya, Priya, I can't believe I've actually met a soulmate here at 3CR. They're all on bloody bikes and... You'll talk about exercise. But let's, let's go back. Let's go back. Can you remember the first day you walked into 3CR? I think so. I, it was very, very early, obviously. Um, I had still not gotten on top of... So this was at a time where I wasn't riding my bike, so I'd taken the tram in. Um, and it was, it was already... Yeah, it was March, so it was already starting to get dark in the morning. Um, so it was a very interesting experience. It felt quite romantic coming in on the tram, listening to my music, and then going into into the little side door. And this was when um, Max and Carly and Rosie were there. And so I sat quietly in Studio One listening to them present the show, and I thought, I'm never going to be able to do this myself. But it was really, it was really lovely. It was surprisingly not intimidating. Mm. 
and um, how did things develop after that first meeting? Well, I initially, I shadowed for a couple of weeks, so I just sat there and had some banter when the mics were off, and then I started helping prepare questions and suggest interviewees, and then we moved into, you know, lockdowns, and I had to I had to go straight from not really knowing what I was doing to learning how to pull together a segment of an interview um, entirely remotely. So learning how to use audio editing software and record over Zoom and that kind of thing, which I did find pretty exciting um, because I like learning things um, and I don't mind um, that it was kind of difficult and I. It took a while to get my head around, but it was really interesting learning, I guess, both how to interview, but also how to produce something at the same time. Yeah, look, it's, look I think radio is fascinating. As I said, I've been involved in a long time, and uh, I think the main reason I find it fascinating, it's about the only medium where, you, when you're talking, not music, but when you're talking, you can actually capture somebody's attention, full attention, 100% mm-hmm. attention, and you can't do that on the web and you can't do that on television. But with radio, it's in their heads. It's as if you're surfing around people's heads, whether they throw you out or not, it's a different matter. But but you're there and it's immediate and it's it's almost, you know, it's, it's anthropological, as they say, because learning, when we started to communicate it as a species, it, it meant that we had to stop and we had to look at somebody and we had to assess them we you know we just didn't grunt and just <laughs> run past so I, I agree i think it's a it's a it's a very very powerful underutilized medium i mean goebbels was an expert at using radio brilliant brilliant if you listen to that some of those programs Oof. not in terms of the content but the way it was manipulated mm. to create a, yeah i mean when i uh like, with, with the research that I'm doing, I think this is this is pretty interesting that I know people that have, you know, been in uh, media production and in community media backgrounds then going on to do a PhD, but I feel like I strangely went the other way, and now, you know, I happen to be doing a PhD, and now I'm doing community radio as well as that, and it's been really interesting analyzing media production as part of the research while also producing radio myself yeah uh, it's that immediate feel you know you, you don't know who's listening what's going to happen um how people are going to respond it's fascinating so have you moved on to any other programs yes uh although i think i might be one of those people that never leaves breakfast radio you're so kidding. i am you're doing kidding. You're kidding. i know well that's what other people say when i tell them because it seems like Breakfast radio is, a, is sort of a springboard to other things. But, you know, I think more highly of breakfast radio than that. I'm not just going to use breakfast radio and then leave it. Um, I want to stay with breakfast. Look, I, 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 I respect you. I respect what you're doing yeah. because you're quite right. It's the You set the agenda for people. Those that are listening, you've made certain decisions about what is newsworthy and what isn't, who you're going to interview, and you're mm-hmm. setting the agenda for the day for those people and that's exceptionally important and uh, you've stumbled onto the secret of breakfast radio it is pretty exciting i think and i do i do believe that there is a responsibility there as Mm. well that Mm. um you know 
like especially now that I'm looking at the way that mainstream media organizations operate and the sort of media logics behind that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I'm also on Women on the Line now, even though I don't identify as a woman. I tell people that I'm the line at Women on the Line. Mm-hmm. Right. So what do you mean you don't... Could you explain to people about... You said you don't identify as a woman. Yeah. So I identify as non-binary transgender. So mm-hmm. I um, don't identify as a man or a woman. And I guess it's not quite something in between. I think it's just something else. Um, so I... Yeah, that's been something that's been interesting to navigate, especially being on a national feminist current affairs program that has women in the name. Mm. So when did you make this decision? Was it a spontaneous decision or something you came to over time? Um, I think it was something that was in the back of my mind, but I didn't have the language for it until I was in my early 20s because that's when I sort of started seeing people talk a bit more about gender fluidity on social media and things started kind of clicking into place about feeling very uncomfortable with femininity, but not just, you know, I there there are lots of masculine women and I think that's fantastic, but that was it was it was something beyond that, I think, where it was not just about the way that I presented, but also the way that I felt inside. Um, yeah, so I started kind of experimenting with exploring my gender and how I wanted to present and how I wanted to be referred to, and I guess this is where I've come to. Uh, although I don't think it is a, it's not really a linear process, and who knows how I could be feeling about my gender presentation and this time in 10 years. Yeah, that's right. That's why it's fluidity, gender fluidity. People forget about the, the word fluidity with the word gender. Now, now, getting back to your early life, did religion play any part in your um, in your early development? Yes. Uh, so my family is a what is it? How do you say like a multi a multi religious family? Maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, so on. Dad's side of the family, they're all Hindu, and my mom's side of the family is Catholic. Um, and my dad uh, converted to Catholicism about 12, no, 10 years ago, maybe? Why, why the conversion? I think he is one of those, he's one of those people that, um, like, he's very, I guess, he has a lot of faith. He's very, oh, I don't, mm, my mouth is not making words well. Um, <laughs> well, let's go back to you. Yeah, let's go back to you. No, then. no. Yeah. Um, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, yeah. I was just going to say he's um, got a lot of faith in spirituality, and he was, you know, uh, invested in Hinduism, but also through the sort of wedding vows that he had with my mom, there was an obligation to raise my sister and I Catholic, and I think he just really developed a strong attachment and affinity as an adult, to Catholicism, um, which felt quite interesting to me seeing, you know, as somebody who had to go to church and, uh, you know, had to have their Holy Communion and confirmation and that kind of thing. I was mm. like, wow, you really came to this just by yourself as an adult. That's so interesting. Interesting, yeah. So, Holy Communion, confirmation, have you got the pictures? I do, and That's they lovely. are That's lovely. they are frilly. Yeah, you princess. 
it is uh, it's something you know those those kinds of outfits and the weird little I don't know yeah, yeah, ceremony right. and all yeah, of the pomp yeah, around yeah. it is yeah. So so does organized religion play any part in your life today? No, but my parents are still very religious, and so it does come in through there. Um, but not in a negative way. I think they are, they have a very community-based investment in their church, and so I just happen to be around a lot of that um, when I spend time with them. Mm, so, uh, what, you've become a Christmas Catholic, have you? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, welcome to the club. <laughs> uh, I haven't been to church for many decades, but when my parents was alive, I was a kef- Christmas Catholic and I used to go home for Christmas with the kids, yeah. Mm. Yep, it's the price we pay for peace. <laughs> How about spirituality? Have you got any any feeling about spirituality yourself outside organised religion? Doing this Definitely. PhD, you know, on, with Indigenous issues. Well, I... Hmm, I don't know. And it's something that I haven't put a lot of thought into. Um, I think there was a very strong aversion to being engaged with organized religion, but that didn't come with a corresponding um, kernel of spirituality or belief that I latched onto, you know, outside of that. So I wouldn't say that I'm not, Mm. like that I'm not invested in those things, but more that... I haven't sort of sat with them long enough to, to say. You realise it's the first commandment actually squeezes the spirituality of lapsed Christians. <laughs> Do you remember the first commandment? Uh, I remember reading a child's version of the Bible a yeah. long time ago. Yeah, it's about not putting any gods before God, you know. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, it's interesting about the Catholic religion because most lapsed Catholics that I know aren't spiritual, and I think it's just it's just part. Although many Protestants and Hindus and Muslims who are lapsed do have more of a sense of spirituality, so it's more of an adherence yeah. to the teachings of the church than anything else. I hate I hate Catholic funerals. Have you ever been to a Catholic funeral? Yes, I have. It's and not. Uh, they're not. Yeah. No. Ninety-five percent at my age, I, I just go to funerals. So it's ninety-five percent about the church and five percent about the person. You know, it should be a hundred percent about the person and stuff the church. Yeah, I mean, I think that's why I'm. I'm also like very appreciative of my family and particularly my dad's approach to Catholicism in the way that I guess it informs my relationship with my parents, mm. which is. Um, Thankfully, it's been very much a what-would-Jesus-do kind of approach. Right. Um, and my dad was like, oh, well, I suppose Jesus would love trans people. I don't think he'd have a problem with anyone. And I was like, that's great. So, <laughs> Well, he shouldn't have a problem if you look at the early Jesus. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he, he was the, the marginal's god, basically. Mm-hmm. And that's why he was so hated. Now, getting back to the future, apart from... Your PhD, what have you got in the pipeline for us? What's happened to all those aspirations? Well, I guess I did have a, I did a bit of uh, involuntary soul searching during the lockdowns. And I kind of thought about what might make me happy. So 
So say I got to do whatever I wanted for the rest of my life, if we're talking about aspirations. Um, what really makes me happy is um, I, love, I love doing radio stuff, and I get a lot out of it. I love feeding people, and I love riding my bike. And there is no way to make a living off the combination of those three things. Um, you, could, you, so could, would, you could be a delivery driver. You wouldn't make a I living. <laughs> yeah, no, I wouldn't make a living. No. I think um, I do really like the kind of research that I'm doing, and I want that to be able to make a useful contribution, especially around the media analysis um, side of things. But I also feel like, you know, as, as I look towards the, the tail end of the pandemic in who knows how many years, um, I do want to spend a lot more time just investing in the community that I'm in now. I've had, I've been really fortunate to start building relationships with a couple of my neighbors and, um, you know, sharing things like food and helping each other out where we need to. And it makes me question why I'd never done that before. Do you, do you grow food? Uh, no, but some of my neighbors do. Right. Yeah. yeah. And just something I'm just interested in. Um, as a child of migrants, do you, have you ever actually gone back to Kerala and other parts of India that the family comes from, or is this something you'd like to do? Um, I have gone back to Kerala, and it was... I I know it sounds cliche, but it really was a profound experience. I didn't expect to feel so strongly when I went there, but when my dad, um, you know, took us all down to his ancestral home, which my my aunt now lives you know, quite near where my grandparents had grown up. And I got to visit my dad's, um, my, my grandfather's sisters before they passed away as well. And I really felt I'm home. And it was a very, yeah, I was pretty shaken by it because I didn't expect to feel that strongly about it. Mm. Can I give you some homework? I like giving homework on these programs. <laughs> Can you learn some Tamil, eh? I will. You should. That's my goal. If you've, if you've got that feeling, that, that just innate feeling, and I can understand it, you know, you need to learn a bit of Tamil. Now, this is the big question. We ask the big questions on Radical Australia. We have, actually have listeners. There must be two or three out there, and billions <laughs> listen to the podcast, obviously. Amazing. Advice. Advice for people on how to have a productive, interesting life. Oh, that's a that is a big question. I mean, I feel I feel extremely underqualified to provide advice. But if I had to, and look, you're um, very qualified. You're born in '93. You've had an interesting life. You've gone down pathways that nobody would dream of going down, personally and you know, education-wise. So you can give advice. Come on. Well, I guess my advice for people is uh, is to really. Just think about, I don't know, respecting people, being kind, and actually thinking about building community and assessing your investments where you are um, rather than trying to, you know, reach out too far to build things around identity-based communities or things where you're sort of projecting relationships that aren't really there. I don't know, look at where you are and, and try and look at your investments there, whether that is paying the rent on the land that you're on, um, whether that's, you know, talking to your neighbors and making friends there or 
you know, thinking about the broader community that you're a part of and how you can be more involved in that because, uh, you know, the climate crisis is already happening. Um, capitalism is eating itself, but not quickly enough. And um, at the end of the day, the thing that's been giving me hope and that I hope other people will start looking towards as well is thinking about what communities you're a part of and how you can strengthen those relationships. On those very strong words, thank you, Priya Kunjun, for talking to us. It's been a pleasure and an honour. And uh, when you've reached 20 years on the breakfast program, well, uh, give me a call to the party, okay? Kelly and I would like to go to the party. Absolutely. All right. Thank you so much. All the best. Bye. Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55am. And streaming live at 3cr.org.au.
Hi, I'm Ruby from Fitzroy Primary and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.